Hello, World Civ students. I plan on recording uh, the letter that I wrote to you on early Africa in this new podcasting software I'm trying out, Anchor. I recorded these podcasts last year. I'm re-recording this one. This software's got some bells and whistles that I hope you like. And rather than reading the letter in the hard copy that I gave you, if you want to listen to it in the audio version, uh, that's an alternative for you. Thanks very much. Dear World, World Civ students, this letter concerns the history of an entire continent, Africa, from historic times to the early 20th century. Three United Stateses, the 48 continental states, can fit inside Africa, and one of every six human beings on Earth calls it home. Traditional map projections have not captured Africa's true size very well, and there's a graphic from the Boston Globe displaying this on the page. Uh, the sources I use for the letter are in a footnote on this page, Howard Spodek, The World's History, John Parker and Richard Rathbone's African History, A Very Short Introduction, John Iliff, Africans, The History of a Continent, and Eric Gickbert and Jonathan T. Reynolds, Africa and World History. So thanks very much to those scholars for their work. Uh, the notes I took from those sources and other sources are the basis for this letter, for this class. Why do we start a World Civ course with Africa? The name Africa comes from ancient Rome. It's a Latin word describing Rome's great enemy Carthage's Mediterranean lands. And the Arab invaders of the 7th century, common era, changed the name to Ifriqiya. Today, there is greater awareness than ever before of the unity of Africa as a continent and a place. It's interconnected in, interconnectedness, it's great strengths and potential. Nelson Mandela made this clear in a 1997 speech at Oxford University saying, the spirit of Ubuntu, that profound African sense that we are human only through the humanity of other human beings, is not a parochial phenomenon, but is added globally to our common search for a better world. Surveying the history of Africa is important to kick off a world history course for the following reasons. Historians of Africa writing in French refer to the long durée, the long duration, of African history. Because human beings lived in Africa long before anyone else, Africa is the place to go for our species' shared deep history. All of our food, for example, comes from plants and animals domesticated and developed 10,000 years ago or earlier. And most of that agricultural and animal husbandry knowledge was learned in Africa. In 2018, archaeologists published their study of abstract art from 73,000 years ago that they found in a site in South Africa. Because the art is a crosshatch of red lines on a rock flake, one journalist wrote that art showed, quote, we've been using hashtags to send notifications for tens of thousands of years. Second, in much of the history of Africa, political power often took different forms than in Asia and Europe, and even, in, and even South America. In ancient times, there weren't a lot of Alexander the Great storming around Africa trying to conquer the whole continent. In African history, states and groups lived relatively peacefully without a king or emperor at the top of a pyramid of power, with the notable exception of Egypt and the pharaohs, of course. In Africa, human beings first learned how to live, how to survive and thrive. We adjusted to a complex and often tough environment. Now that the earth is heading into the, I can never say this word, 
Anthropocene age, an era created by humanity's impact on the earth. Scientists and scholars are looking to the origin of our species in Africa for tips on how to survive big threats like global warming. The prehistory of Africa. The prehistory of Africa is that of all humanity. As human beings emerged from a common ancestor to become a new species, Homo sapiens sapiens. These new humans literally walked out of Africa, eventually populating the farthest reaches of the earth. Relatively recent research in mitochondrial DNA indicates some early Homo sapiens left Africa about 180,000 years ago. It's hard to grasp a period as long as 200,000 years, but consider if 200,000 years were an hour, Human beings were hunter-gatherers for about 190,000 years, only beginning to farm recently, for basically the last four minutes of that hour. And only in the last minute of that hour has farming become humanity's main source of food. For at least one half of that hour, it was Africa that taught our species how to live. Africa's bounty that fed us. Africa's resources that clothed and sheltered us. For a huge part of our history, Africa was all humanity's home. Our success as a species lies in our ability to transfer knowledge to future generations so that, for example, the knowledge of fire does not die with one old grandmother. The success of human beings comes from the accumulated lessons passed along generation to generation of people and families living in Africa. Some scholars believe Homo sapiens developed from an early species, Homo erectus, or upright man, roughly at the same time in different parts of the world, Yet the majority view is that Homo sapiens developed first in Africa. It's just more common for one branch of a species to evolve into another species in one spot, filling a specific evolutionary niche or niches, rather than for it to happen simultaneously in several different locations. According to DNA research, all human beings today are descended from one single woman in Africa, mitochondrial Eve. But wait! This doesn't mean mitochondrial Eve was the only woman alive at the time. Rather, she's the only woman whose descendants are alive in 2019 in a, quote, unbroken female line, where in every generation since Eve, there was a mother who gave birth to at least one daughter. Anywhere from 90 to 100,000 years ago, a band of about 150 human beings migrated from Africa, first walking across the Bab el-Mandeb, this narrow spot at the edge of the Red Sea, when it was shallow enough back then for people to walk across in modern-day Ethiopia and Somalia. This was in the middle of some very tough times due to climate change occurring 100,000 years ago. It's possible that the total human population was down to just a few thousand people. Scholars think the first out-of-Africa pioneers walked along the southern coastline of the Middle East and Africa, I'm sorry, the Middle East and Asia, before eventually spreading around the world. Homo sapiens didn't make it to Europe until about 40,000 years ago. I think there's some very recent research that may go against that point, and I need to update it. The first human beings nearly certainly had dark pigmented skin in order to protect themselves from the strong sun in East and South Africa. Race, then, is a pretty recent phenomenon, and when human beings settled all around the Earth, they developed lighter skin tones to best absorb the rays of the sunlight. And so race is and always has been a concept that is just skin deep. People picked up other variations, too, as they moved around the globe. For example, 
People in the Netherlands, northern Germany, Denmark, and Norway developed the ability to digest cow's milk because they depended so much on cows. The rest of the world was mostly lactose intolerant, finding it pretty hard to digest cow's milk. So humans continue to physically evolve in small ways and presumably will continue to do so into the future. Africa and the world was different 100,000 years ago. The Sahara region is desert now, of course, but because of slight shifts in the Earth's, in the Earth's orbit, or according to recent theories because of human activity, the Sahara goes from lush and green to desert from time to time, all the time. Between 8,000 and 4,500 years ago, the Sahara underwent its latest change, going from a humid cycle supporting hunter-gatherer groups of humans to the becoming the desert we know today. Just in 2018, a scientist, uh, I think in Nature, or I think it was in the journal Nature, published her theory that we could change the Sahara back from desert to grassy savanna again, even to forests, using enough solar panels to cover an area the size of the United States. And I gave the link to the research in the, in the, in the letter, which is fascinating. Beginnings of Human History in Africa. Africa is both the land of rich wonders and daunting dilemmas for humans. It is full of natural resources and a great diversity of plant and animal life and has a relatively warm climate on average. The continent is comprised of four main climate zones. The rainforest of the equatorial zone, that's about 10% of Africa. The great deserts, including the Sahara, about 40% of the land. And the savannas, which border the Sahara Desert and extend across much of Africa, making up 40% of the land with erratic rainfall and soil that can be tough to farm. And the mild coastal areas of the Mediterranean zone in North Africa, and much of modern South Africa, where farming is relatively easy. People living in Africa have had to be very tough and resourceful because of several major climate and structural challenges. And these are the challenges to early human life in Africa. First, there's not a straightforward, simple interior river network of transportation, such as, for example, the United States has enjoyed in its history. Africa has plenty of rivers and long rivers too, but they are full of big rapids and falls that make it hard to travel on them by small, non-motor-powered boats. Second, at the, at the equator region, forests historically were super thick and dense and hard for pack animals to penetrate people have had to do the heavy lifting, literally. Third, the savanna regions directly south of the Sahara Desert are lovely, but are not easy to farm. Half the year there is heavy rain, the other half hot sun, and the soil often is not rich enough for high-yield staple crops that can feed lots of people. Fourth, bugs. Mosquitoes carried malaria through history, and that disease is a real killer. The tsetse fly carries sleeping sickness. And locusts come through in big waves sometimes to devastate crops and generally make life miserable. Fifth, it was super hard to domesticate large animals or any animals in Africa. You've probably read that elephants were used in armies like Hannibal's Carthaginians. Yes, that's true, but elephants don't breed in captivity. They're intelligent and sensitive. And zebras, though they look like horses and ponies, are sort of uncontrollable. And they bite and kick instead of settle down for you. Gazelles have always been too nervous to keep as domesticated animals in herds, so the only animals domesticated in Africa in early history were most likely the cat, who was worshipped in ancient Egypt, 
statue from much later times is pictured below. And the onager, an African kind of wild donkey that made a good pack animal and a guinea fowl, and the guinea fowl also below. The onager is also the name for a, a bit of ancient Roman artillery, like a catapult that they used to use that had a real kick to it. Goats, sheep, and cattle were brought over from the Middle East and did well in Africa, so long as they were kept clear of the tsetse fly. Crops, iron, and early civilizations of Africa. With all of these challenges, early humans in Africa had to be wonderfully creative and resourceful to survive, developing ideas and technologies in farming, harvesting tasty yams in West Africa near the Niger River, and sorghum in East Central Africa. Unlike other parts of the world, it was difficult to grow grains like wheat and barley in much of Africa, as the climate was not optimum for them. This led, this led historians to not give African civilizations enough credit for their farming innovation. Yams, you see, are roots that rot quickly and leave little historical traces as evidence, while historians have been able to study ancient samples of wheat and barley. So, the Mesopotamian cultures that were growing grains get all kinds of publicity. And the, the civilization's growing roots, not as much. We're going to keep coming back to historical evidence. And that's just one example. In the Niger River Valley civilizations from 5000 BCE to 1000 BCE, women mainly planted and harvested yams because this was such an important crop. This earned women high prestige and status. According to historian Kevin Shillington, this may have even led to a matrilineal social structure in West Africa, where positions of leadership might have been held by men but were passed by bloodline through one's mother or sisters. Developing iron manufacturing was the key. Iron tools made farming simpler by breaking up the soil more effectively, and iron weapons made hunting easier too. Iron smelting developed in Kush in East Africa, and in the civilizations in East Africa and West Africa along the Niger River. And some scholars have argued that the technological expertise flowed east to west. Civilizations emerged and prospered. Nomads in the Sahara region of North Africa, the city of Aksum in modern Ethiopia, Jene, located on the Niger River, a major growth area for African civilizations, just like the Nile River Valley. Other various farming communities that clustered into states also along the Niger River and hunter-gatherer groups in modern Zimbabwe. Okay, let's take a pause there for a moment. You've been listening for a while. You can get up and get a drink, stretch your legs, whatever. And when we come back, we'll get over to the Nile River and talk about some of those civilizations. Thank you. Okay, class, we're back. And like I promised, uh, we'll talk about the Nile River civilizations right now. As to the Nile and to Egypt and Nubia, this could be a separate chapter all to itself and a different letter. The Nile River truly was a gift to ancient peoples of North Africa as deserts sprawled to the west and east of the river valley. And each year, the Nile flooded like clockwork, leaving a rich layer of soil for farmers to grow their crops in. Egypt developed a rich and intricate empire, isolated largely from foreign interference by deserts to the west and east, and huge waterfalls called cataracts in the southern end of the Nile River 
that separated physically Egypt from its southern neighbor, Nubia. To the north of Egypt is the Mediterranean Sea, and this acted as a buffer and trade route connecting Egypt to Europe and the Near East. Where the, Nile, where, the, where the Nile forks off into the White Nile to the west and the Blue Nile to the east, civilizations grew there as well, including Nubia, Aksum, and Moreau, and later on the kingdoms of Ethiopia. Egypt's kings and queens, when they ruled, were of course called pharaohs, and the modern person knows Egypt's great architecture well, the pyramids and sphinx at Giza near today's Cairo and other complexes at Karnak and Thebes in the south of Egypt near the Valley of the King's Tombs. Agricultural techniques advanced over the years with Nubians and Upper Nile Egyptians, that's South Egypt, producing basic flour by 8,000 BCE, and wheat, barley, sheep, and goats as domestic animals by 6,000 BCE. By 3,600 BCE, that's over 5,000 years ago, Villages, set apart every 20 miles or so, dotted the Nile River Valley. How far away they seem in time and space, and yet they woke, swam in the Nile, ate, drank, were sad, and were happy, lived, loved, and died just as we do today. Around this time, from 3500 to 3000 BCE, writing began to appear in Egypt, but not of the ABC variety, rather Hieroglyphs from this period, which are pictographs representing complicated ideas and records, have been discovered by archaeologists. By 3100 BCE, Egypt's lower, north, and upper, south kingdoms were unified. The Egyptians were not uniform in appearance, according to hieroglyphics, and seemed to have been comprised of a variety of peoples, Nubians from the south, Phoenicians from the Mediterranean coast, Semitic peoples from across the Sinai Peninsula to the east, and unlike later civilizations such as the European Empire, Euro European empires were studying in the 1800s. While there was slavery in ancient Egypt, it does not seem to have been based on skin color, and intermarriage among people of different skin tones seems to have been common. The result was a complex and diverse civilization, which, with a few interruptions, was ruled by native Egyptian monarchs until the time of Alexander the Great in the 300s BCE, at which point a foreign Greek dynasty, the Ptolemies, took over. And Cleopatra is one of the Ptolemies. Below on the page is an altar made of limestone with Akhenaten, a rare and famous pharaoh who promoted the worship of only one god, Aten, with his wife Nefertiti and their children. I just love this image and how the child on Nefertiti's lap is gesturing to her father. The famous bust of Nefertiti from the British Museum is also set forth below, and you can see it on the walls in our classroom. To the civilizations along the Niger River in West Africa, the main civilizations in this area developed along the Niger River Valley. For example, the Bantu people domesticated cattle and raised various crops, ranging far to the east and south of the Niger around 1500 BCE. What is interesting about the Bantu is that they began a general migration to the south and east of the continent, such that by 500 common era, or AD 500, they had settled areas all the way to the southern end of Africa. By 500 BCE, it seems the Nok people of northern Nigeria were engaged in ironworking, with iron smelting furnaces from this period having been discovered there. And the Bantu people, see the map below on your page, who had started ironworking around the same time as the Nok, 
carried their technologies with them to South Africa. Scholars, mainly Europeans, for a long time assumed that African civilizations acquired city-building ways from Europe or from Arabia, but this is not true. Jene Jeno, ancient Jene, uh, grew up along the Niger River Valley, and you can see a bronze kneeling figure above on the page, and was an important city from, two th- from 250 BCE onward, hitting the height of its power and growth in 900 Common Era, and eventually had 50,000 people which would have made it one of the largest cities in the world at the time. In this ancient city, the maiden religion was ancestor worship, along the lines of ancient Roman, Confucian, and Shinto belief. From 300 to 1400 CE, three-foot-high burial urns were made at the city site, which also had a substantial trade network with other African civilizations for gold, salt, and copper. After camels were domesticated in Africa around 200 Common Era, the Sahara Desert began to become passable. Thank you, camels. And from 700 onward, around the time the Arab Muslim armies from Mecca and Medina conquered the Middle East all the way to Morocco and into the Iberian Peninsula with Spain and Portugal, sub-Saharan civilizations were linked by trade, by camel caravan, to to these Arab conquerors, and then by extension through them to Europe and east all the way to India, even to China. Globalization of a kind had come to Africa via these caravans. Um, Indian Ocean trade, caravans to Africa, to India and China. This has been the major theme at the Fowler Museum at UCLA in many different exhibitions, including one of the exhibitions that we saw last year on a field trip. Back to the Nile Valley, Nubia, and Egypt. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, Nubia had gained its independence from Egypt in 1050 BCE and prospered as an independent kingdom. Nubia turned around and conquered Egypt itself, ruling there from 712 to 657 BCE from its capital cities of Napata and Moreau. The Nubian civilization benefited from trade with Egypt down the Nile to the Mediterranean Sea and up the Nile, the Blue Nile specifically, to to Ethiopia, which was connected to rich sources of ivory farther south. Now, in the ancient world, Nubia was located right where the White Nile and the Blue Nile join, right around Khartoum in modern Sudan. Because the Nubian people didn't use a written language until relatively late in history, 300 BCE, Most of the written history comes from Egypt, which sometimes conquered Nubia and was sometimes conquered by Nubia too. Nubia was wealthy in ancient times because it was right in the middle of rich trade and gold from the east and north sent south in exchange for ivory. Many Nubians lived in Egypt and many served in the pharaoh's armies and several Egyptian pharaohs were Nubians themselves. Below is an image of Nubians presenting tribute to the Egyptian pharaoh during King Tut's reign, Tutankhamun, around 1,327 BC. He's up on the wall in our classroom. Below that is an image of the Nubian pharaoh Taharqa, who ruled Egypt around 690 BC, and whose sphinx we studied from a history of the world in 100 objects in class. The kingdom of Kush, also located in the Nubian region south of Egypt and west into Sudan, thrived from 750 BCE with Napata as its capital, then moving east to the city of Moreau, the site of many fantastic pyramids commemorating its rulers as depicted in the image below. 
Meanwhile, Alexander the Great added Egypt to its empire in the 4th century BCE, visiting the tombs of the pharaohs and founding the city of Alexandria in Egypt along the way. And a footnote, as self-indulgently I put, alas, that I have no worlds left to conquer. Alexander cried this in India just prior to his death in his early 30s. I always imagine what was he like as a teenager. Pretty intense. After Alexander died, his general Ptolemy ruled Egypt, founding the Ptolemaic dynasty there. Cleopatra was the last of the Ptolemies, allying herself first with Julius Caesar, and then after his assassination with Mark Antony. She bet on the wrong horse, and after Caesar's nephew Octavian defeated Antony and her fleet at Actium in 31 BCE, she fled home, and rather than be captured by the enemy, legend says she let an asp bite her and died of its poison. While she ruled Egypt, though, she strongly embraced the heritage of the pharaohs, wearing the old royal regalia and speaking Egyptian to the people. Below is an image of, from the Louvre Museum in Paris of Cleopatra, giving offerings to the Egyptian goddess Isis. And then on the next page, I've got a lovely map, the spread of farming in Africa. And that's it for this letter. Uh, your next letter in this series in World Civ is going to be follow-up further history of Africa, uh, which I hope that you'll enjoy. Thanks very much and have a great weekend.